You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. We have to be aware of the fact that we can't have the same strategy as other teams with less money because that's not going to yield better results than other teams if we're using the same strategy with less money. So we have to really try and outthink our competition. It blows my mind that they're doing it in plain sight, but no one actually, no one actually seems to think, oh, why don't we have a look at doing a similar type of thing? And they're just like, no, 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 we'll spend forty million pounds on some twenty-eight-year-old journeyman who's got no resale value. If you have a good analyst who can help you improve not just your recruitment but your long-term processes, challenge the the, the decision makers in general in a good way. The expected points per game gain from that comparatively to the cost, dwarfs anything that that 20th player can offer. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark, and my guest on this episode, Dan Weston, who provides data and strategy services to cricket teams, most notably Leicestershire County Cricket Club and the Birmingham Phoenix. As we all know, data analytics is a crucial part of a football team. It's moving into cricket now, most notably in the T20 arena, and that's what I discuss with Dan. What makes a good player? What are you looking for? And how are you going to use data to improve your team? If you like this episode of Sports Content Strategy, you might like episode 72, where we talk to Rich Luca, formerly of ESPN Sports Poll, on the data that he's gained on the American market over 25 years or so. Episode 36, Ben Warren from Somerset County Cricket Club talks about his content strategy and how digital is helping county cricket. And episode 66, Asint Gupta of KKR, Kolkata Knight Riders, talks about content strategy in the IPL. As I say, my name is Richard Clark. My company is Sports Content Strategy, and that's what I do. That's what I assist with. The content strategy for sports clubs, social media, Uh, The use of data as well to facilitate that communication strategy, digital marketing. So if you do need any assistance in that area, do let me know via my website, mrrichardclark.com, or via my social media. So it's cricket weather. Let's get out there and play England's national sport. Yes, England's national sport. And uh, we'll talk about getting data, getting numbers involved. With this man. I'm Dan Weston um, and I am the player recruitment and strategy analyst at Leicestershire County Cricket Club and I'm also data insights manager for Birmingham Phoenix and 100. So first things first what does that actually involve? What do those two jobs with Leicestershire and with Birmingham Phoenix actually involve? And then I want to go back into the genesis of how you got there but let's just start with what you do. Yeah now. sure. So, so um, I create recruitment content which will feed into the decision makers at the clubs. And then I'm part of the recruitment uh, kind of decision makers at both teams. Uh, and and we will discuss the data. Both, both teams have got a very, you know, they want data to be a significant part of the decision making, but it's not the sole part. I think that that's where, where some people kind of, get that misconception a little bit the the they think oh if a team's data driven they'll only look at the data but what i do think is that it's very very important to look at data as that initial starting point because it's quite difficult to advocate a player uh who hasn't got good data for example uh, um without kind of 
going away from that evidence-based approach, if that makes sense. And then we'll do further due diligence from there afterwards. You know, that could be video analysis. It could be speaking to people in the game who know those those players already and get some feedback on personalities and stuff like that. So it's kind of a multi-pronged approach, really, in terms of... But, but data is going to be the ben, the bedrock for the, for the foundation, if you like, for for the initial sourcing of perhaps a short list of players for different different positions or different dif- different demands for the, for what we want to try and achieve in terms of what gaps we might have in the squad or, or the type of cricket that we want to play. Um, and also look at long-term strategy as well. So I, I don't, for example, at Leicestershire, I don't think it's any secret that that we're looking to try and build a young team who are capable of growing together. That, that's you know we've got this this mantra now that we're the academy of cricket we're a new breed uh, and and that's borne out by that our team selection this year which is constantly uh, in the top two or top three youngest teams in the country we we run the metrics for that every single match we're always in in pretty much always in the three lowest average ages of the team so we're going to, we've got a group of young players who are going to all grow together and then hopefully reach or get towards peak age all at a similar sort of time uh, and that's all part of a long-term strategy you know so you can't in my opinion anyway you can't turn a team from being you know bottom of bottom of the, the country to top of the country in one season this is a long long process it, this is going to take a long time but we I think we can already see there's some green sheets coming through um, Blast campaign this year was a little bit disappointing because I know we're a lot better than than one our results, but also our underlying metrics are better than our results as well. So maybe we, if you're looking at it from a football context, we, 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 our results were worse than what our XG would have been, kind of thing. So I have a similar sort of thing. I think Brentford talk about like the table of justice, and I have a similar thing where at the moment our results are a little bit worse than where we should be in in terms of a table of justice. But we still know there's a lot of areas to improve. Red Bull wise, if assuming that we we draw our match against Somerset today, um, which obviously we're in a good position to do, um, then we're now five unbeaten in what a lot of people will consider the group of death. So I think that there's certainly some some green shoots coming along in 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 that format as well. So so think things are moving forward. You know, the young players now are taking responsibility. This is Harry Swindle's second second century this season. He's 22 years old. He's now 171 not out at the time we speak. Um, We've seen a number of career best from our young players already, which is just so positive. The overseas recruitment's gone really well. So you can see that we are taking really good steps. But by the same token, we have to be cognizant of the fact that the where we're a team with a low budget. We need to make every pound that we spend work better for us than every pound that the other team spends, the other our rival team spend. We we have to be aware of the fact that we can't have the same strategy as other teams with less money because that's not gonna that's not going to yield better results than other teams if we're using the same strategy of less money. So we have to really try and outthink our competition. Uh, and I think that that having that primary data, data-driven approach and long-term strategy where we're not we're not so focused on the the next four days of a match, we're focused on the next four years rather than the next four days is is critical to that mindset. So it's all about sticking with the process trusting that process and and looking to achieve those long-term results and and going from the bottom hopefully up to the top eventually i think we you know we've taken some steps in the last year certainly to to start in that journey i want to get more into the cricket at the end but the 
reason for this podcast really is to explore the journey uh, that you've had because it was based on you obviously did an accountancy degree and you're obviously a, a maths person but I'm yeah, interested yeah. I'm interested in particularly the poker you're a professional gambler as well but particularly the poker because you know I read Maria Kornikova's book uh, Annie Duke's book I want to read at, at the moment yeah. about the um, lessons you can learn from decision making through poker and you yeah. so what have you brought in to your process at Leicester and with the, with the Birmingham Phoenix, obviously they're in a, they're in the hundreds. So it's, they've got a different mechanic. It's a draft. You know, we've talked about um, already. You know, off off the call about uh, evidence based decision making. Not letting, in poker terms, I think it's the tilt, isn't it? You tilt. Which, yeah, yeah, you get, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get emotional. You get emotional. Yeah. And the and the and especially in sport, the result. Not thinking about results. Yeah. Only, but thinking about evidence-based and, you know, what decision did we make? Why did we make it? Will we do the same thing again? Okay, therefore, forget the result. If we made the right decision, that's fine. And, that's, and it's difficult mm -hmm. for sports to get its head around that. So tell yeah. me about poker and tell me about how it informs what you do now. It's, it's exactly what you say. So I think it's quite hard for the casual fan and also a lot of sort of ex-pros or, you know, people who are now in coaching roles to to really get their head around that if they've come from an ex-player environment rather than a completely different environment um so I, I already said about you know not focusing on the next four days but focusing on the next four years is is part of that long-term process you know over four years you're probably not going to get as much variance as you are over for over a four day match, for example, and the table of justice probably won't lie over for you. It will be a huge correlation to the actual points that you pick up over four years, but it won't, might not be over a 14 match season, for example. Um, now the process is key. And with poker, there's so many parallels to, to poker or professional gambling to actually running an analytics side of, of things for for professional sports teams and we're seeing this more and more with poor, more people having that skill set and then moving into this side of things in america it's reasonably commonplace that this type of stuff now exists um we also see in football we see uh, several uh very high profile ex-professional gamblers now own teams we see tony bloom at brighton we see matthew benham at, at brentford as well and, and you can see that that those two teams are they're, they're extremely well run. They understand the, the financial side of things probably a lot more, a lot more smartly than, than the vast majority of the big clubs. Uh, and and it, I'm super fascinated now to see how Brentford approached the Premier League because they've got they're clearly very very switched on in terms of player trading. At, but then they're coming from a low base in terms of you know newly promoted teams. So I can't wait to see how they approach that. And I think it's almost like a a new experiment for teams to see how, how these teams run. But by the same token, I don't see a lot of people, a lot of teams trying to copy their approach. I, I, it blows my mind that you, they're, they're, they're doing it in plain sight, but no one actually, no one actually seems to think, Oh, well, no, we have a look at doing a similar type of thing. And then it's like, no, 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 we'll spend 40 million pounds on some 28 year old journeyman who's got no resale value. And, 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 they seem quite happy with that, which is crazy in my opinion. We'll go back to, to the skill sets, the, the parallels. So you look at poker is is a long-term skill game, but short-term luck game. 
So in poker, they say that you should probably play about thirty to 50,000 hands at a given stake before you can have some idea of your level of profitability at that stake. Now, that sounds a lot, and it is a lot, but if you're full-time or playing online, it's probably like two weeks' work or something like that. So it's not it's not like an insane amount because you're multi-tabling, you're playing full-time or whatever, and you should be able to get two, 3,000 hands in a day without that much drama. Um, so that's, you say it's like 10 to 14 days' work to get that sample size. Now, over that thirty to 50,000 hands, there are going to be hands that you lose, that you play well, and there are going to be hands that you that you win when you played it badly. Um, and it's called, you know, they're called suck outs either way. You know, you get your money in when you're an underdog. You're, you made a bad call because the pot odds aren't there. But then other times you'll make a great call and then the guy will hit, hit his card on the miracle card on the river or something like that. And, and you still lose the money. You still lose the hand, even though you made a great decision. And I think that that's something that a lot of people really struggle to get their head around in terms of decision makers and also supporters and commentators and, and stuff like that as well. That you can, a team can go throughout a match making generally good decisions and still lose and they could go through a match and make generally bad decisions and still win and that's why I'm also quite reticent to judge coaches and captains based on like a win-loss record as well so for example if we look at Owen Morgan as a captain for example he's got a really good record as England captain in terms of win-loss but we don't know if he's a good captain or not because a captain is often a, pro- a byproduct. Their results are a byproduct of the resources that they've got available. So um, he's got an incredible group of players that he can pick from. Super talented, and I, I think it's pretty fair to say that you know, England's third or fourth choice team would have comfortably beaten Sri Lanka in in, in the recent series that they played against them. So the, the depth of talent is just insanely good. And I think that we're going to see that in the 100, which is a little bit more condensed in terms of standard and the amount of teams. So instead of, I don't know, the top 250 players playing, domestic players playing Blast, we're now looking at the top 100 domestic players playing, playing the 100. And so we've got that condensing of quality where... And, I, and, 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 and England have got so many good players who don't even get close to international recognition. And so, therefore, we don't know if Morgan's a good captain or not because his resources that he's got to choose from and to utilise are, are so much better than, than most other countries. And if you look at his record as captain when he's captain of a non-England you know, team who isn't England, it's not actually that great. So I think for me, it's, it's so important to understand the, the in, inputs and the outputs of, of the decisions and, and whether someone can actually add value to an environment or not. And that's incredibly difficult to judge sometimes. And it's for me, it's all about the processes and the long-term strategies of everything rather than being a, being a bit first level and saying, well, he's got a great record as captain. He must be really good. When actually, would that record be any better than anyone and also as captain, we don't actually know that. And, and likewise, you can turn around and see a similar process in football as well. Would would Pep Guardiola have a better win percentage than Sean Dyche if he had was manager of Burnley with the same resources as Sean Dyche does? We don't know yet. Yeah, Guardiola is renowned as a world-class manager, but yeah, he's had a, a huge budget at every club that he's worked for, whereas Sean Dyche is kind of this kind of 
journeyman northerner, if you like, who, who who tries to extract the maximum out of his team playing potentially unattractive football. But it may be he doesn't have that choice because he's never had the budget to 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 spend to, to develop a team how he wants to. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point because reputationally he then gets called a long ball manager exactly. which, means, which means he doesn't get a bigger job I mean I was thinking why at Everton who were looking for a manager recently you know next yeah. cab off the rank you'd think well someone with experience who's who's over-delivered at Burnley for a number of years why is Sean Dyche not going to an Everton level sort of top eight club well the answer is many mm. people don't want him because they think he's long ball well he has to be long ball because that's what gets him the yeah. results because that's that's the cloth he's 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 cut with you know 100%, yeah. And I think that you could say that about someone like Sam Allardyce in the past as well. It's, it's, it's a very similar scenario. Whereas I, I think you look at someone of a sort of manager of a team who's younger but uh, plays better football, someone like Graham Potter, or, or you could look at Eddie Howe in the past as well, they're probably more likely to get a bigger job because they play better foot their teams play better football you know Potter's a bit his his Brighton team are a bit of a sort of the hipsters team at the moment aren't they they're they're outperforming they're underperforming xg but their xg is pretty good uh, uh, and and they're kind of playing good football they're making good recruitment but then how we don't know how much of that's down to him or how much of that's down to Tony Bloom and his his recruitment team we don't know that I would suggest that there's probably quite a lot of input from that data side of things as well I would imagine so yeah uh, I think it's really important to, to look at the the resources and the processes when you're analysing teams' success or failures before you before you come to a quick judgment, if that makes sense. How much of what you do is mathematical? I know you've got processes, mm -hmm. but it's seen as very mathematical. Now, I, I read Maria Konnikova's book, which was about... Uh, for just for the benefit of the podcast she was a phd in psychology i think it was uh, a journalist as well and she wanted to learn poker because of its decision making uh, qualities mm. and she employed uh, a poker guru and he uh -huh. asked her what do you know about about poker and she said well i know a deck of cards has uh, i know there's 54 <laughs> cards in a deck Right, that's how she yeah. started with not even knowing how many cars there were. She doesn't count jokers as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 she counted counted jokers, and yet her book was delayed because she won so much money. Right, she learned yeah. it so well. So, and but she argues the maths was not as useful as the psychology in her mm. in her poker. So, where yeah. do you see it? The, the sort of blend of those two sciences you know is this an art is this a science as well that's another question uh, yeah it's it's a super interesting debate so I, I actually don't know a great deal about Anna Kornikova's kind of poker career mm. uh, but I would imagine based on what you're saying is that she played a lot of live poker when I say live poker is in terms of playing face-to-face -face tournaments a lot, in a yeah. casino yeah, 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 yeah. As opposed to online, and I think that the, the the two the two formats of poker, the two disciplines of poker, are very, very different. So you might look at the a live poker in a casino. You get a lot less hands per hour. Psychology is a lot more important because you're you could wait hours before you get dealt a premium hand. Um, so that's almost like the test match 
of poker, if you like. Whereas online, when you're playing maybe six to eight tables of 100 hands an hour, uh, that's you know, 600, 800 hands an hour. That's like the T20 version of, of, of poker where psychology is a lot, a lot less prevalent. Now, what, what I would do in that situation was that I, I, had, I was running a heads-up display which was completely legal software. Everyone, everyone uh, who plays at a decent level will use it pretty much. Um, so it tracks, tracks the hands that you play and it tracks the hands that your opponents play as well. And then it tells you data on, on, on their tendencies. So primarily in that situation, one, you're playing the hand that you're dealt because you've, you've got to make quick decisions because you're playing six or eight tables at the same time. You don't have a lot of time to make decisions, but you're also playing the opponent's data side of things as well. So for example, if, just give you a quick broad example. If, if, they're, if a player is raising 40% of their hands pre-flop, then you know that they're wild. They're not raising, they're not just raising like premium hands, they're raising a lot of junk as well. They're playing extremely aggressive pre-flop. Uh, and and depending on the scenarios, that's something that you can can then exploit. But but by the same token, on the flip side, if if the data tells you that someone's played, you've played like three hundred hands with someone or something, and they're only raising three percent of of their hands, you can be pretty sure that they're only raising like aces down through to jacks and ace king, uh, and and they're not raising anything else. So so when they do raise, you can you can you have a lot of information about their, their start of play already, but also you can then play your hand accordingly to them. You can understand players' ranges by by their the percentages that, that your heads-up display will tell you, and and then that's where the maths comes in as well, and you've got to work out your equity against certain ranges or your implied odds against certain ranges as well. So there's a kind of a mixture of, 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 of maths, but also some logic and psychology as well because there's nothing stopping that player from actually completely flipping flipping their game style against you and they know it, maybe they, they call it like a meta game so they might play differently against someone who they play against on a regular basis rather than against a new player they might play more abc whilst they're kind of figuring them out as well and, and we go back to cricket there's a, that parallels as well so we look at say for example batter versus bowler matchups as well now you don't want to be too predictable in, in those matchups because that, that allows opposition teams to, to plan well against you. So you might even take a very what you might take a short term investment in a particular over to then have a better longer term investment later on in the match. So you might just give me a really random example. You might you might burn a fourth or a fifth over or a sixth over in, in the power play against someone and you know that. Yeah, probably you're going to go for like 10 and over, but you might burgle a wicket or something like that. But then it allows you to be stronger at the death, for example. There's 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 that meta game involved as well. So you might take a short-term bad decision, but it's got a long, it's long-term and it's a good decision. And understand that meta game side of things as well is, is, is really useful and critical. So again, we see these crossovers in skill sets from the gambling industry to to sort of strategy in sports sports analytics as well uh, and, and I think that actually as it happens I think that I personally I don't think I would be as effective at what I do if I didn't have that background how successful were you as a as a gambler because you did a lot of tennis as well yeah think, yeah um so how how successful were you as a gambler how long did you do it I've done it for I don't for a long period of time pretty much since I left university 
um, but I did various things. Poker, I was just like a mid-stakes uh, grinder pretty much. So I used to play like six to eight tables of like two, four, no limit, um, which you're sitting with like $400 plus on each table. So it's like you're exposing yourself to like three, four grand at, at time. It sounds that you say that, that that's actually a medium stakes. That's not high stakes at all. Right. Um um, but with good bankroll management, it's extremely rare that you'll take a massive hit, uh, and that's and that's another key in terms of like, understanding that side of things as well—the discipline and and taking emotion out of the decision making. It's, it's managing uh, the downside as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's crucial. Hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly that, and that's and then also doing that by, by playing multiple tables, you're also controlling that as well because your volatility and your your exposure as variance is a lot going to be a lot different if you're playing. Eight tables where your exposure is four thousand, four thousand dollars, for example, over, across the eight tables, but that, that's a lot less than having four thousand exposure on one table where you could potentially lose it all in one hand. Whereas you can't do that if you're playing eight tables with the same exposure. So that, that that's extremely critical, and you've got to have that that discipline and macro uh, management as well. I played slots for a living for quite a long time. Um, played slots would, as well. Okay. I, I, there's no. There's no yeah, it's just maths again. It's just all maths. Understanding like the uh, equity, expected value calculation, stuff like that. Uh, um, and I mean, there's no official rankings for this, but I, I would be surprised if I wasn't in the top 20 slot players in the UK at one point. So um, yeah, but there's, like I said, there's no official rankings, on this, but I do know that like, yeah, I had a pretty decent reputation in that industry as well so yeah but again it's 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 all maths and it's all discipline and it's taking emotion out of the decision making and it's being extremely rational uh, and and that's where i think that i have an advantage over one x players involved in like the managerial side of things and two other analysts as well because i don't think they have that they're coming from they've come from that background i think it's really difficult for them to get their head around that yeah, and, and this is the point because there's so many biases involved. Obviously, there's there's recency bias, and there's you know, star name bias. You know, we're seeing players, yeah. we're seeing players who go in the in the IPL who are because they're big name players in particular the IPL, the Indian Premier League, and I'm there thinking, well, as T20 players, I'm not sure they're that you're overpaying for them. So there's a, there's a there's so many biases that you you have to cut through. So what are your conversations like? Because you're you're talking to me about you know uh, evidence based um, decision making. Mm-hmm. Well, sport has been full of the old boys network for years, mm. which is not based on anything other than the eye, the the, the supposed talented eye, and yeah. um, motivation. Um, you know, yeah. is often just grinding and shouting at people. To be honest, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is to be honest with you. All that eye test, in my opinion, is a lot of rubbish most of the time. Mm. Like, like if 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 you if you look, if you were to be able to scrutinise the results of people who use eye tests, I think there'd be very very few people who would actually come up really positive in terms of like picking up more good players than bad. But 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 the stuff just doesn't get analysed. So, so people can't get away with it because they're 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 not held accountable for 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 their decisions. They're not they're not held accountable for their mistakes. But there are people who are all very too willing to give them credit when they get it right. So, so there's this there's this strange scenario where 
where a lot of people, because they've got a high reputation in, in, in sport, who because they've got 50 plus caps for their country and they're like some legend, right? Like, you know, from their playing career, that they have like almost like a free pass because no one calls them up if they screw it up, but 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 they'll still get the credit and pat and spats on the back if they do it well. So so they're, 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 it's very, very difficult to for them to like step off this merry-go-round of job after job after job after job. Whereas I think that for me, everything that I do is extremely accountable. So if, if you look at the recruitment side of things that I do, there's reports on players, there's data on players. If, if any, any player that's recruited, in theory, we could go back and say this was their data at the time and and that's the reason why we did that signing. Now that signing may not work out, but to the best of our knowledge, at that point in time, the upside was there, the the expected level was there, and that's super important. Um, that that accountability clearly is there from that point because because you're you're not sticking a neck out on a sign. That's the wrong phrase, but you're also you're providing evidence as to why that signing is a good signing at that point in time. And, and that's the that's the key thing. Um, it, so it, the, that eye test, that subjective judgment, it, it does really frustrate me. You you see it a lot in in T Twenty leagues. You see it a lot in international cricket as well. I think there's a really a really decent argument to suggest that England do it quite a lot at the moment. I, I my personal point of view, and people might dispute that, but this is that's absolutely fine. My personal view is that England use data when it suits them, and they use hunches when it suits them. Um, and 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 until until I'm privy to their processes, that 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 the, my opinion won't change. So, um, but I don't think you can do that. I think you have to be one thing or the other. You can't say, "Oh, hey, well, here's." Here's player X and his data is really good, so we're going to pick him. And then you can't say, "Oh, player Y, oh, but his data is not really good, but but yeah, he he he's he looks good, doesn't he? He's a yeah classical left hander or whatever, and he's got a lovely cover drive. Well, cover drive if you hit a four with cover drive, that's extremely elegant. You still score four runs. If you if you do some like reverse ramp or something for six, you get you get two two runs more, but it's not in a coaching manual. So go figure. No more valuable to 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 be a classical player, and particularly in T Twenty, a lot of time it's a disadvantage. So so the eye test to me is is something that people have grown up with. They they think it's valuable, but it's because they're also they're scared of the data side of things as well. There's a lot of traditional coaches who are just ridiculously feel ridiculously threatened by data, and they're very very scared of of that actually kind of putting them out of the job eventually as well so so and and i and and i think that the new breed of coaches you know that perhaps the players now who are in their late 20s or their early 30s they've grown up with data being more prevalent in 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 their playing career and i think they're going to be more open to it as they develop their own coaching career in the next 10 or 20 years so we're going to see this gradual evolution away from the the old school coaches who struggle to to work an ipad or understand whatsapp or whatever to uh to uh these new guys who are going to be much more embracing of, of, of the data side of things obviously Moneyball, the phrase Moneyball is is used to sort of blanket uh, sabermetrics or, or metrics in general or, what, or however you want to yeah. define the analytics approach to sport. So baseball kind of led it. Uh, football is, is has moved that way. Rugby was there. So let's put this in two parts. Where's cricket in that development? And tell uh-huh. me how content 
got you your job. So I was very interested in the fact you said that you know, yeah, if you read yeah. the blog, you wouldn't have got that job. So they're kind of linked. So tell me about cricket in general and how you managed okay. to get into it. Well, actually, I'm going to start with poker. So if you look okay. at poker, right. yep. that is the top stakes, at top levels of poker is extremely saturated in terms of like being towards going towards game theory optimal. So we've got we've got the professional players. They will use like machine learning, game theory, optimal tactics to 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 maximise their their outcomes. And then you probably the tier below that you'd have baseball, which is extremely efficient in terms of a sport. Uh, and then underneath that you would have like football because you know that there's extremely smart teams that like we've always spoken about: Barnsley and, and Brentford and uh, Brighton, Peterborough just got promoted to Championship. They, they have very similar ethos as well. Um, but then there's also teams who just hemorrhage money for because they just decision making is terrible. So football is like a mixed bag, uh, and then underneath that you've got cricket. Uh, so if, if, if baseball's here, football's here, cricket's like on the ground. It, right. It's someone asked someone asked me before like how saturated cricket is in terms of usage of analytics and stuff like that. I'd say it's probably about a two out of ten because. Every team will claim to use it, but they either don't really, or they, or like you talked earlier about the star power and stuff like that of a big name and stuff. Who's going to go? And, who's got? Who's got the guts to go and challenge Virat Kohli and say, okay, well, you actually, Virat, you you scored like nine percent of boundaries in the IPL last year, so um, and that's not good enough because the average is like sixteen, seventeen percent, and you're and you're becoming a liability to the team. Uh, no one really has the guts to say stuff like that. I probably would. But I think that that, that 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 is also a downside for me because I think it stops me getting some employment sometimes because I, I, I don't really have that filter that maybe you have to, or some people think that you have to have um, when you're dealing with like big names. I will be 100% truthful and tell them, yeah. If, 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 someone, if, someone, if a player comes to me, which they do quite a lot, and they say to me, how do I improve? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? They're getting it. 100% no sugar coat because otherwise there's no point in me even sitting on my laptop for a couple of hours writing them a report or telling them their own data because it's completely pointless because if you're going to sugar coat it then you may as well just not bother well, well also but, also I'd say the whole point of evidence based is it's black or it's white the evidence should be yeah. I mean, yes yes there's interpretation there's an element of interpretation but it is clear one way or the other and you're taking the emotion out of it or you should be Exactly that. So if, if you if a player comes to an analyst and says, you know, tell me what my game's like, you you can't just you know massage their ego. You have to you have to tell them exactly how it is, and I, I will prepare them for that in in advance. And I will say, you know what, this could be this could be tough, but and and they will always say, doesn't matter. I want to know because if they come to you off their own back, then then you know that they're invested in that process to start with. Which and and that's what I really like about some players. You know, I, I work with a lot of the, the Leicestershire players. Will come to me off their own back and say, you know, can you please tell me where I'm good, where I, where I, where I'm struggling, uh, how can I improve? And you know what, that's fantastic. I I I think that a lot of players now these days, especially the you know, guys in their twenties, for example, they're a lot more interested in that side of things now than perhaps you know the the veterans who kind of grew up in a different era. So yeah, that's 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 where I, that's that's it. It's no no sugar coating, no dealing with egos. It has to be, it has to be truthful. 
Um, and you mentioned another question as well. Sorry, of the sub, sub question. Just so, just remind it was, me. That, it was about you've said before that content got you your job. So yeah, and so and this is called sports content strategy. So you yeah, yeah. had a strategy to get a job yes. in in a whether well to find a to find a gap in the market where there was. Uh, there, were, there was a gap, but there wasn't a market, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Absolutely. You've put it so well there, yeah. There's there's a huge niche, but 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 there was no one willing to to exploit the niche. So that that was, I'm going to be really honest with you, that was extremely difficult to deal with. Not just in terms of working out the best approach to deal with the situation, in terms of what, 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 I can do to give myself that greater exposure. But it was also quite difficult. I'll be really honest with you. It's quite difficult to do it mentally as well, because for several years, you're creating this free content, which is essentially you know, pretty much a lost leader in terms of it's, you're not making any money out of it, but you're, you're trying to build your exposure and, and, and get people to understand that you can actually add value to their organization. But if you're doing that for like two years and yet, every single message that you send to a team or a director of cricket or a coach or a player just gets ignored. And I said this on another podcast before, you would be lucky, you'd be doing well if you had if 5% of people replied to you. And out of them 5% of replies, it would like almost always be, you know what, thanks, but no thanks. And, 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 and then if you, and if you look at like county cricket as well, the, the, team, the first thing that the team will always say to you is, oh, we haven't got the money. Now, which is the worst argument, actually, is such a short-sighted argument that you could possibly compose, right? Because I can tell you right now that every single county in English cricket has got players who aren't good enough to play for them, yet they're being paid. So the you, you let's say for the sake of argument, you've got 20 player squad, right? That 20th player in your squad, he contributes either nothing or very little in terms of your expected points per game for that season or subsequent seasons because they're not good enough if they do play they're not probably not going to be good enough and most of the time they're just sitting in a second team right there's no point to having them in that squad and every team's got one at least one some teams have got multiple players like that right spending six figures plus on combined salaries yeah, if you have a good analyst who can help you improve not just your recruitment but your long-term processes, kind of challenge the head coach in, in a good way, challenge the, the, the decision makers in general in a good way, the expected points per game, game points per game gain from that comparatively to the cost dwarfs anything that that 20th player can offer. So they're all saying they can't afford it, but they'll all happily retain you know, a pretty mediocre player in all honesty, as if it's like the most normal thing in the world, but they won't think about going outside the box to 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 find a recruitment analyst, for example. So it, which, again, it just blows my mind, but it's just the short-term thinking from people who don't see the bigger picture because they've been involved with cricket for 30-plus years as a coach or a player to... They, 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 don't, they, don't, they don't understand... The, the logic and the maths behind those kind of expected points gain. It's just they're dealing with conventional wisdom, whereas, as, as my Twitter bio picture will say, the most dangerous phrase in the world is, uh, uh, we've always done it this way.
yeah, yeah. When, when you have to cha- you have to challenge that, yeah. and you know I'm lucky that now I work with people who actually are extremely open to that. You know, like Lester Paul, Paul Nixon's fantastic. He's really bought into the data side of things and what we can offer. You know, he's always messaging me and saying, oh, you know, what's the data on this? What's the data on that player? What's the data on this venue? Blah 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 blah. And and but how many other coaches are like that? Probably not that many. You know, and it's the same at Birmingham as well. We've got a really a, a group of decision makers who are really, really willing to listen to the arguments that are posed by data and the challenges that are, that are created by using data as well. But I do genuinely think that that's abnormal for teams, and most teams just want to kind. If they're they want an analyst who's usually just like a yes man or or someone who just doesn't get listened to, they just have a voice. And of course, Leicester are the smallest county in the circuit in terms of in terms of uh, attendances um obviously they've had great success in the t20s in the past um but they are seen mm-hmm. as as the smallest and that's i've got i went to university in leicester i spent a lot of time at grace road i i like the foxes yeah. but they're but they're, but they're but they're a tiddler in comparison to other counties and it's interesting mm-hmm. that they've taken this approach because they're trying to they know they've got to innovate in order to compete especially with, you know, the budgets that counties like Surrey might have or Yorkshire might have who are signing yeah. players willy-nilly at the moment. So do you think that's not by accident that you've got into one of the smaller counties, given the culture of cricket? Um, I think it would have been really easy for Leicestershire to turn around and say that they couldn't afford it. But I'm pleased that obviously they didn't take that approach. So I think it was really, it was really sort of advanced thinking from from Nico and, and Sean, our CEO, to, to, to realise that this approach was the right approach for their team, even considering those budgetary constraints, because they have to outthink your position because they can't outspend it. So, you know, if, if you do what you always do, you get what you always get. And we know for a fact that at Leicestershire, for example, if if you do what you always do, which is sign, sign, sign players that... Uh, sort of winter of their career who were just after one more kind of paycheck which is something that's happened quite a lot over the last decade and and, and just do similar stuff to what other counties are doing they're, they're going to come bottom or near the bottom of the league because budgets don't lie you know in it's the same as in cricket as it is in football there's just a massive correlation between budget and finishing position you know it's just the same as the Premier League and and it's no different in cricket now maybe this year in Red Bull Cricket, you know, there's a game game going on right now and there's a game to go. We might just about come ahead of Surrey. Now, Surrey, you would say, probably one of the teams with the biggest budgets, if not the biggest budget. So so that's that's a really nice victory for us if that does happen. Even the fact that we're even close to them suggests that we're on the right path. And, you know, this it takes a lot of forward thinking from people to buy into this, not just the data side of things, but a long-term project as well. I think a lot of coaches, they're, they're just, they're worried about the next game rather than the future. And, and, and that's an attitude that I think is a really poor attitude and something that should be completely discouraged. You know, I, I've, I, I actually went to a meeting once with a county and it was during a match and, and the coach paid very little attention to what I was saying because he was too busy watching the match. And I'm thinking to myself, well, actually, you can't really influence that match at this point in time. But you are listening to someone who maybe could influence your long-term strategy and make that match, the matches better for your team in the long term. But 
I think a lot of people don't see that. One thing that always strikes me, and you know, I had this in, in Major League Soccer where I was involved in creating strategy for the team both on and off the pitch. I, only, you know, I did some work with the way that um, uh, players were communicated to by the coaching team. How important is that? Because you've got data, but then you've got to get the messages over. And is that a gap in the middle? Yeah. <laughs> and, and can I have a job? <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting question because we've got, you've got to be quite careful when you're dealing with players that you know, they are going to be susceptible to swings in confidence and stuff. And they're probably stuff that, unless they specifically come to you and ask for the information that they probably shouldn't hear sometimes. It's a very difficult balancing act. I think communication between analyst and the head coach is as vital as it can, is, is, is the most important thing. So, for example, with, with Nico at Leicester, for example, I will send him data or send him charts and then he will then choose what to share with the players that he thinks is, because he knows the players better than I do, obviously. He works with them day in, day out. He knows their personality. He knows what will work with them, what won't work with them. So what, what, what might happen, for example, is we might do a review of a match or, or, or a season, and, and he will then feed back that to the player. So I'll send him some, he'll, he might ask me for some specific charts to show certain things. He can then relay back to the players in a presentation. So it could be me offering stuff to him or it could be him asking me for stuff that he can show them. So it's, it's kind of a multi-pronged approach, really. And then obviously you've got players who come to you off their own back and then you can be more honest with them subsequently. So you're dealing with the coach, you're dealing with the players. And it's, it's it, But the thing is, there's no, there's no right or wrong approach because every personality is different and I feel that there's no what sort of one-size-fits-all approach to, to dealing with dealing with players you have every player is different every personality is different what works for one player might not work for another player one player you might be brutal and it might really wind them up and and in a good way so that then they're going to go out and go oh, I'll, I'll show you and 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 that's a positive but in another player you could take the same approach and it might shatter their confidence so you've got to be really careful with with your relaying of information to, sp- to specific personalities but also you 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 kind of <laughs> You have, you, there will be some stuff that will be uncomfortable for players to listen to, but then you have to try and, instead of saying you specifically are bad at this, you might turn around and say the group is performing below benchmark metrics in this area. So it's like a group responsibility rather than an individual's responsibility. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, I kind of think, more palatable for those people who don't want to be told that they're struggling in a certain area. The good old shit sandwich works as well. A compliment, <laughs> a bad thing, but a compliment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone Very takes the mickey out of it, but, it but, but the good old shit sandwich works. Anyway, yeah, yeah, staying yeah. broadly with the concept of communications, it's interesting um, the way that the media approaches uh, metrics as well. And obviously with T20 in particular, you know, it, only in mm. the last sort of 10 years or so has it become this true force. And yet the way 
cricket media approaches it is very old fashioned, even in the the statistics, you know, balls and shots yep. and strike rates. A, a bowler is measured by dot balls and a batsman is measured by boundaries, isn't it? You know, in this in this. And yet and yet some of that data isn't as apparent, you know, or is it net yeah. boundary rate? Isn't it net boundary rate? That, that, yeah, I, it's a source of frustration to me who's, you know, when I'm watching a match on TV, for example, I want as much information as I possibly can. But I do think that TV companies are in quite a difficult place for this uh, for several reasons. First of all, they almost always employ ex-players to do the commentary. and I don't think that they're perhaps as au fait with uh, the statistical metrics as, as perhaps someone who hasn't played cricket professionally for a long period of time. Uh, but also because the TV companies have a hard job because they, they, they can't cater for someone like me and then the casual fan at the same time because the level of detail that I want when I'm watching a T20 match is completely different to the level of detail that uh, someone having a couple of beers at home one evening just switching it on because they've channel surfed or whatever they they want to they want they don't want the detail they want more you know bantery kind of commentary for example oh yeah they want to find out what player's favorite song is or something like that when they come into bat rather than like the boundary percentage or something you know so they can't win because there's different people want different things i do think there's a massive massive niche in the market a huge gap in the market for a serious analytical program about cricket uh, in terms of perhaps that's something that the 100 could 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 consider because uh, I think uh, they've got the, is it select dugout in for the IPL? Uh, that, that is a very serious discussion on, on IPL, post-match discussions on IPL. And, and I think that that, that that should be more, there's a good, good gap in the market for that in English cricket right now. Um there's lots but, of books. There's lots of books at the moment. The books have come out. Nathan Lehman's and the yeah, yeah. There are books. There are books around, but I, 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 I don't think that they really, in my opinion, anyway. I don't think that they're really going to teach people a great deal about. They're not going to put this way. They're not going to send anyone close to becoming a casual fan to an expert that way. They're going to understand the game a lot more, but they're going to have to take a huge bridge themselves to, to get to the, to a higher level. Um, it's certainly not like a yeah, magic bullet or anything like that. Um, not like how it's in poker where, you know, like I don't know if you follow, read a lot of poker, like proper textbooks I'm talking about, but there were some groundbreaking texts back in the day. I remember like, for example, the Harrington on Hold'em series of books was like, if you read that, serious and you digested it and you understood it properly there was a really high chance that at that stage in time you would be a winning player so that was literally could could be something that would get you from like zero to somewhere towards it being a hero now there's a lot more advanced books than that subsequently as well i've read like game theory optimal books and stuff like that now which was dwarf what harrington could ever have written at that stage but it, i don't think that kind of text is available in cricket right now with regard to recruitment, of course, the interesting thing in the championship, you sign players and, you know, it's not quite a transfer market, but you can sign players at the end of their contract. Yeah. In the 100 and in the IPL, there's a draft. Uh, so mm -hmm. 
what's the different uh, dynamic there? Because obviously it's interesting because in the US we had drafts and I was involved in the drafts that we did, um, yeah, yeah. or at least in the room when decisions were made. And the approach was so interesting from someone who come from English football to see a draft, the preparation around it, the horse trading that went on, certainly when you're mm-hmm. uh, talking about um, uh, draft picks and the number you went in order to get the right person and you pick that person because you knew they yeah. wanted them and you could horse trade that up and get more you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. allocation money and all that kind of stuff. So the, the concept of a draft in cricket or the concept of a draft in an English sport is rare, isn't it? So how does that play into the, sort of game theory and the, and the poker? I think the 100 draft was actually the first live televised uh, draft for an English sport in history. So it was you know, a real pleasure to be involved with something that I think was pretty groundbreaking at the time, for sure. Um, so obviously in county cricket, you've got, you don't really have a player trading market. Although if I could sort of flip my fingers and change one rule, it would be that we have a football style transfer market because I think that that would really benefit people who are good at recruitment and retention and, and understand future. They can, they can gauge future potential for players a lot better than the average person. And I think that that would, for me, that would be an amazing development. Um, but wouldn't uh, it also favour the big boys, you know, because Surrey are always going to get more members and more revenue than Leicester. I know uh, Leicester can be more efficient. They'll also make more bad decisions, which will then give smaller teams uh, a leg up. So yeah. the bigger teams will make bad decisions more and overpay for players. You could potentially like have a younger player who's currently at your team and then a big team will probably come in for them, but you might overload the, the deal with clauses or incentives and stuff like that, to then, which will then screw the big team down the line, stuff like that. There's a lot of ways that you could manipulate a situation to your advantage, even as a small team, if you're smart about doing it. I think it'd be absolutely fantastic in county cricket. At the moment, most of the player trading is is done when a player's going out of contract. So similar to like a Bosman ruling type thing in, in football. Um, in the hundred draft, it's 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 quite different. I I have watched a lot of cricket drafts in other countries before. Pretty much every draft that's you know, even if it's just like live on YouTube, I will watch it. And I think that that gave me quite a good understanding of the draft dynamics and. I understood the draft dynamics pretty well anyway because I, I spoke to someone else actually funny enough about American sports drafts recently and they were saying how like this if you don't pick up a player of, from certain positions in some of the American sports early you're not going to get anyone at all who plays that position there's through a scarcity of resources for certain skill sets and I think that that's that's incredibly apparent in 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 cricket drafts as well there's 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 certain skill sets where there's only maybe like three, four or five players who are good at that particular skill set. And so realistically you have to to try and pick up one of them early. And you might even have to overpay for someone because if you don't do that, you're having a massive hit in quality if you if 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 you leave it too long. And so understanding the draft dynamics one in terms of how the draft works. Um Two, how you think other teams are going to approach the draft, which is an exact science, but you might have some form of informed thinking on it. And three, uh, scarcity of resources and supply and demand dynamics are, are huge for it. Uh, and I think perhaps not necessarily for the 100, because I think the 100 draft is actually, by and large, a relatively efficient process compared to other, other, other drafts in other countries. But in in other countries, I think sometimes they just pick the best players rather than look at the actual 
more important dynamics in drafts. You mentioned before you have to have a strategy, but it needs to be different from everyone else's strategy. And that's one of my mm. issues that I've, I've always thought about with analytics. And bear in mind, you know, with Colorado Rapids, we were, we were at the forefront and, and, and Porrick Smith there, the GM, is, is very much uh, data-driven and recruited a team uh, that has taken four or five years to develop, but now they're, yeah. they're batting above, above their average uh, to mix my sports. Um, but if everyone's got the same data, and everyone's using the same approach, you know, then Surrey are going to beat Leicester, right? How do you make sure you've got these, these points of difference, which effectively will be your strength? Yeah, I think cricket's a long way from becoming that kind of zero-sum um, game theory optimal uh, sport. Uh, so I, I don't think that that's a great deal of something that I, I, I don't lose sleep over that right now because so many teams make so many bad decisions that I think we're probably at least 20 years from even coming remotely close to that. Uh, um, however, this is where, if everyone's got the same data, that doesn't mean to say that teams can't get advantages from the data because my, my style is often I will look to create hypotheses and, and then challenge and work out the success ratio of different of different metrics what's imp- finding out what metrics are important what finding finding out what metrics are largely irrelevant so i'll give you i'll give you an example so if you ask most coaches around the world they will tell you that dot ball avoidance is extremely important in in t20 cricket but dot ball avoidance is only good if your boundary hitting is also also good okay so in T20 cricket in most leagues, um, about 85% of teams win the match when they have a higher boundary percentage than their opposition, right? So that's that's huge. You know, that's probably, I don't know, I'm guessing this, but I'm guessing that's probably quite the equivalent of having a quite a high X, XG advantage over your opposition in football. Uh, um, similar kind of thing. Right, well, out of the 15% where they don't win, a lot of the scenarios are because the team who had a slightly lower boundary percentage actually hit more sixes. So they hit slightly less boundaries, but the ones they hit were often worth two runs more. So again, it's boundary hitting again. So, and then if you were to filter it by even further and say, okay, what's the percent win percentage of the team who had not just the highest boundary percentage, but also had the highest six percentage in the match as well, it would be close to hundred percent. So, Boundary hitting, but then by default, boundary prevention. If you're when you're recruiting a bowling group as well, is critical. It's it's absolutely mandatory that you you assemble a team who are good boundary hitters, but also good boundary defenders as well at the same time. In terms of bowlers finding bowlers who don't leak boundaries. Okay, now that goes against conventional wisdom because most coaches will say, okay, well, well. You know, it's really important to avoid dot balls, right? And and if you, if, for example, if you face over, like, say, forty dot balls in one hundred and twenty ball innings, that's like a disaster. Well, actually, it's not a disaster if you hit well in boundaries. And West Indies teams can prove that because the West Indies teams are extremely poor at, at, at rotating the striker and turning ones into twos. Generally, um, their dot ball percentages are very very high, but their boundary percentages are through the charts. Uh, and 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 that's they can still hit two hundred plus. You you look at cricket, right? If if you if you if you hit over forty dots in an innings, but your boundary percentage is like 18, 20 percent, you can still hit one seventy plus, right? 
But if your boundary percentage is low and your dot ball percentage is also low, so you're just, you're just nicking ones all the time, you can't really hit over 160. And actually, the win percentage for the lowest dot ball percentage team is about 20% lower than the one with the highest boundary percentage. So that's a challenge of conventional wisdom there. And then I, I, I liken that to like the, the kind of three-point moment in, in basketball a little bit where, where that was just that sea change in, in tactics and strategy when people realised that, that actually going for, going for the threes was more important than, than, than a, different, a different strategy. And, and, I, and I don't think we see that in T20 much right now because still you see, I don't know, teams, they might be like, I don't know, 80 for four or 70 for four off 10 or 12 overs or something like that. And then well, they go three down in a power play pretty quickly after, say, five, six overs. And and, um, and then they just go into their shell and they just try and like play low-risk cricket for a little while. But actually, that's actually a higher risk than than just going out and still hitting. Because if you're say, you're... say you're 40 for three in the sixth over, right? And your new batter comes in and they just like score strike rate of 90 for five overs or whatever you're constraining yourself hugely because you're not going to hit a big total ever in that situation right if you if you then the 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 strategy might be oh we'll just try and like limp to 130 or or 135 and hope that somehow that we're going to defend that well i can tell you right now that in a high scoring league like the blast or the ipl you might only have like a 10 percent chance of defending like 135 or something like that right especially at certain venues are probably even way less than that. Uh, um, now, if you get all out for 80 or you get all out for 100, you've got about, you know, close to 0% chance of defending that, right? But it's not that much different from your percentage chance of defending 130 or 135, right? But if you carry on hitting and you can hit like to 160 or 170, you might have 50% chance of defending that total. So actually, the better strategy is to keep going and risk getting all out for 80 or 100 as opposed to limping to 130. Does that make sense? So so it's that boundary boundary hitting again. But people aren't willing to, people aren't willing to embrace the risks because they, they're worried about trial by media. They're worried about being criticised. It's, it's, if, you, if, you, if you limp to 140 or 135 or 130 and, and you, know, you lose with like two overs to spare, no one's going to criticise you. But if you get all out for 80 because you're trying to get 180, then you're going to get slaughtered in the media. Uh, uh, but uh, actually, the result's pretty much the same. You get zero points. So and, yeah, and, but you're and giving that, yourself a better chance of winning if you do the more aggressive that's the truth. I mean, uh, I, re- I listened to a Freakonomics episode uh, once where they talked about the f- the, fr- the free throw. You keep talking about basketball, and the the person m- most people shoot it hand up. Obviously, this is a podcast, so I'm uh, gesturing to ha- yeah. hand up. But 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 there is a person who sort of buckets it up underhand, and they uh-huh. and they they're the only person who does it. And apparently, it it has a uh, it it. It has a higher percentage of success, but people don't do it because of the embarrassment factor. And that yep. person, and it's interesting, the only person who does it at college le- uh, college level is the son of the last person to do it at professional level. There you go. It's probably pretty similar to like a Penenka penalty in football. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you miss a Penenka, you're going to get slaughtered by media, uh, commentators, whatever, social media. But if you if you side foot a weak one into the the you know no not even into the corner like Alvaro Morata did last night for for Spain, well that's just people just say well that's the game. 
But actually, maybe he was better off doing a Penenka. But, but, but because it's unconventional, you don't get the extra credit for doing it when you score, but you can, you, the downside is worse. So people are scared. Mm. And it's exactly the same kind of concept, I think. How important are local players? Because I think you've said that they're, I think you talked about the, their importance in general. But of yeah. course, that might, there might not be numbers to back that, but that's about, is that about spirit? Is that about sort of less tangible things or what? No, it's because, I think it's primarily because there's more of them than overseas players in your team. So I look at it. So for example, Cowan's cricket, obviously the the most the most overseas players you're going to have is two at any time. So you're going to have to have played minimum nine locals. In IPL, it's seven four split. In 100, it's eight three split. So we know that even in the IPL, which is the most overseas players that you generally have in a T20 comp, four I think PSL has the same as well, um, and maybe CPL too. Um, you're still seven out of eleven will be locals at the bare minimum. So the, there's, a, there's a dominance in terms of the amount of locals that you've got in your team over the amount of overseas in your team. And, and if you go through like historical uh, T20 leagues, you will find the, the, the teams with strong dom- uh, domestic performances are the ones who, who generally do much better. So the teams with weak locals really struggle, even if they've got like marquee overseas players. And those players with, with those teams with very strong domestic players tend to do very, very well and, and qualify for the latter stages. Now, I look at it a bit like a cake, I suppose you would say. So your, your domestic players are, are the base and then the overseas players are the icing on top of that cake. So maybe they, they offer some star quality or they fill gaps that aren't available to be filled in the local player pool, for example. But you can't get anywhere with just overseas players. You have to you have to have that foundation and base from the local players, which is critical. Because if you've got, say, nine locals and two overseas players, your two overseas players can be A.B. de Villiers and Jasper Brumrah or Rashid Khan or someone like that. But if your nine locals are junk, they're still not going to win you the match. But you could have nine good locals and two average overseas players and you'd probably do pretty well. Um, so so it's, and it's understanding the, the market as well. Where does the value lie uh, in, in terms of the player market? Now, I know, I know where the value lies, but I can't really, can't really talk about that in the public domain very much. But but it's it's, it's a clear dynamic. Uh, um, but you, you, if you like I said, if you went through historical T Twenty leagues, it's very 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 rare to find a successful T Twenty team who have below average local performances. And just last question: Where do you see um, analytics in cricket? The use of analytics in cricket in the next five years and the next twenty years. So sort of the shortest medium term and the longest. Yeah. I think it's slow. I think it's going to be slow. I think there's a gradual upturn. You start seeing a few more people being hired by teams and stuff like that, but it's, it's incredibly slow. We don't see, for example, what's happened in football recently, where I think, you know, a, a number of like Twitter bloggers and stuff have been signed by teams as recruitment analysts or, or heading up recruitment teams and stuff. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I think that's maybe five years away still or three years away still or something like that. Um, in, in, in 20 years' time, as I said earlier, I don't see it being like a game theory, optimal, zero-sum type game. But I also think T20 is going to look really different in 20 years' time as well. So what you might see even is like a global league, a bit like a bit like baseball where you play all year round kind of thing, a lot of games each, each, 
every season and like perhaps taking the game around different continents and stuff like that with the same leagues and then minor minor leagues feeder leagues kind of thing I think that would that wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened um, so I think the format will look quite different but I think that there's going to be a lot more reliance on analytics and stuff and I think that there's there's several things that will really change that first of all there has to be more accountability for people who who make bad decisions and achieve bad results so they can't just simply rely on being like a guy who's been a previous superstar as a player. People have to turn around to them and say, okay, well, do you know what, right? You made bad decisions here, you made bad decisions there, your win percentage is terrible and therefore you're not going to get any more work basically. That, that's got to happen first. But also there's got to be that intolerance for failure and the rewards for success as well. So could there be a scenario where relegation comes into play a little bit more? Could there be a scenario where perhaps a bit like the English Premier League in football, you get a lot of money for doing well. You know, like, you probably know better than me as you've obviously worked with football teams and stuff, but I think, isn't it like a million or two million difference in just one league position in the Premier League? Perhaps, like, say for the IPL, for example, there might be a situation whereby if you qualify, you get 10 million if you dollars or something like that, and if you win it, or you get to the final, you get 20, and if you win it, you get 50 or you get nothing and you get no prize money if you don't qualify, right? Well, immediately, that completely flips the decision-making process on its head straight away because them owners are going to want that money and they're going to want the prize money. It's, it's going to be critical for them to to, to succeed and it's to, in terms of like enriching their brand, enriching their own personal wealth, stuff like that. So immediately, then you would get rewards for success and intolerance of failure, and then that's going to lead to teams um, improving their processes or, or more smart teams improving their processes because you've got those kind of clear reasons as to why you have to do that rather than at the moment. I think the attitude sometimes is, oh, well, we didn't do very well this year. We'll go again next year and see if we can see if things are different without having that to change. Dan Weston, thank you very much. No, thanks for having me, Rich. It's been great to chat. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com.